south onto strange highways enter death's waiting room if you dare and welcome to strange highways i am paul and hey guys it's terry here and I hope you guys enjoyed our discussion last week about wrapping up season four of the original series of the Twilight Zone. I had a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed that discussion. Uh, now it is time to set aside season four um, and to um, maybe let maybe let the heart grow fonder as we get a little bit further away from some of it. I don't think my heart's going to grow fonder for some of it at all. But anyway, we're, we're taking a detour, uh, which we, we do these often here on the show. Uh so we're digging into an anthology film from the eighties. This is uh, a film called nightmares. It's from 83. Uh, this was one that, um, I, I don't know if you guys recall from the very first episode of season four in his image, the, the body double that, um, was for the main actor, uh, the, the body double that was supposed to be the twin with when they were doing like the split screen. So you couldn't see his face or whatever. The body doubles, Joseph Sargent who directed this film. So, why not cover this now? Like, so that's why we we did this. So, uh, Terry, if you want to tell them the journey it took for us to get this film available for us to watch, um, it's not the longest journey, but surprisingly frustrating. Yeah, there, there had to have been some rights issues or something like that because it was easily, uh, accessible when I watched it like two years ago. And, um, it wasn't the best means, but I found it. Um, but this time those means did not work. I could not find it through YouTube. I could not find it through voodoo. I couldn't find it through any like streaming sources. We had to find a physical copy of it. So I went on to Amazon, bought the physical copy, got it in the mail, was super excited. And of course it was damaged. <laughs> so it's like there's not only does this movie seem like it's cursed from production value and what they had to like get this thing off the ground in the beginning, but we ran into our own little nightmares trying to get a hold of it. Yeah. It's just, so if people listening, um, I, I hope that you'll like, so this one's going to be a tough one to talk about because I, I don't want to spoil everything. I think that there's certain points of this that I absolutely need to talk to Terry about because uh, there's these things in this film that I completely forgot about that are just utterly ridiculous. So I guess I'm going to throw a spoiler warning out there. Um, 
normally you think a film like this one that um early, you know early 80s anthology film that didn't make a lot of money um you would think this would be like easily available on like Tubi or Pluto TV or like even just Amazon Prime Amazon Prime has everything you know every every like oh i kind of remember that movie it's like here it is like you know just it's it's bizarre to me uh, i know i know um shout factory put this out on blu-ray and but i also know that shout they have shout tv so i don't know like where the rights of that lie i think that this film it has a niche market but keeping it out of people's knowledge that like this kind of thing i don't think it's going to help it grow as a cult film not that i'm saying this is the biggest of cult films but you know i think there's going to i think that that there's some people out there that have never heard of this that probably end up liking it if they knew how to access it. Yeah. And, and if you're a, a horror film buff, there are some great connections to the, you know, the, the main like uh, staples for horror film movies and those actors, like there's a lot of good connections in this film. So if you're like a, a completist, like I am, this was a movie that I was super excited about watching. Um, and you know, if I had never seen it, I'd be kind of bummed because it's, it's got some cool elements. In it, it does. But, and speaking of curse though, what I, whatever, um, uh, you had done the handoff to me and I, and I thought you were angry at the movie and that's why it was damaged. It looked like a big bite was taken out of the case. Um, I was sitting down with my phone and taking notes as I was watching along and I had like my memo app up. And then when I got to the fourth chapter of the film, something happened and my phone fuzzed out and I lost all my notes. So I'm like, great. Like, so everything, every time that I've, I've tried to do anything of like worth regarding this movie so far has like, I have my own hiccups too. So I had to quickly stop the movie and write down like the pertinent notes I remembered while watching it. I was just annoyed. I'm like, really phone? You're going to just like, you're not gonna let me save this now after I've typed into you for like, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. So that was frustrating, but, um, yeah, let's just get into it. Uh, so Nightmares, this came out uh, September 9th, 1983. Uh, I already mentioned the, the, it had a budget of nine. Well, it didn't make money. So it had a budget of $9 million, It had a box office of 6.6. That's that's the opposite of what you want to have happen. Um, but so it didn't do so well. And we'll talk kind of about that a little bit because this one, like of all the anthology films that are out there to watch, this one's a little weird for a couple of reasons. Um, number one film that weekend was Mr. Mom with Michael Keaton. Number one song, um, Terry, you'll appreciate this just because it's very thematically appropriate, was Sweet Dreams Are Made of These um, by, by the Eurythmics. So there you go. Um, and I tried finding something for day and date. Here's one. Also, this is for you, Terry. You'll get a kick out of this. This is like nine days later on the 18th. September 18th, 1983, U.S. heavy metal band Kiss officially appears in public without makeup for the first time on MTV. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Would you consider them heavy metal or just hard rock? No, I just consider them rock. Like I, I, there was a minute there that they were, they kind of tried to bridge the heavy metal scene with a, uh, uh, album they called, uh, I think it was called unholy, uh, really good song, but yeah, no, they're not heavy metal. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that heavy metal band winger, you know, no, just like, <laughs> yeah, but I know that like the moment they took the makeup off or whatever, I think people like believe that was like a, a, a kind of a, um, a lesser time for kiss, but yeah, this was, that was happening roughly around the time the film, this film came out. Right. 
there are better things about 83 uh, about a month before this movie came out i did um, <laughs> I was born in august <laughs> i'm sorry i should have put that in my notes like <laughs> yeah yeah i was born on august 1st 1983 so like when you as soon as you said the kiss thing i was like can we get off the sour notes <laughs> yeah i mean and i was uh close to turning five myself so i must have been uh distraught seeing kiss without their makeup on i don't have any idea but yeah uh so let's get into our so we, when we do casting crew norm with like the twilight zone stuff it's like you know obviously that's a singular story these are four segments there is there is it's weird how there's equal parts not a lot of people, but then a lot of people. I, I, that sounds like a weird thing to say, but I kept turning around being like, oh yeah, there was more people in this segment. So let's talk about the director and writer writers uh, first, and then uh, the composer, and then we'll get into, I'll, I'll hand it off to Terry as we talk about each section, each chapter, there's four chapters. I'll have him bullet point the people he wants to talk about. And if I have anything else, I'll throw it in there. So um, we'll get through this people. Um, like I'd mentioned, directed by Joseph Sargent. Um, he was in uh, in his image, just you only saw the back of his head. He was also in the season two episode of The Twilight Zone called 22, which is one of the videotaped episodes. It wasn't bad. Uh, he had directed the film White Lightning with Burt Reynolds, so that's our connection to The Bard, which I know that we want to keep talking about, not really. Um, he also directed the original taking of Pelham 123. So he had some success. Um, a couple years later after this film, he would do Jaws the Revenge, which is the fourth Jaws film, which I've never seen, but that's the one where Jaws stalks the family, if I recall. Um, it has Michael Caine in it, and Michael Caine said he's never seen the film, but he's seen the house that the film was bought, the, the paycheck he got. So, yeah, that film kind of sank um, Sargent's film career. But So he, he had some hits, he had some highs, and not so highs. Did you have anything else for uh, Joseph Sargent? No, you actually got all the the main notes that I had for him. Uh, he didn't really do a whole lot of directing in that, um, and not so much acting either. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, that's about it. He did he did get four Emmys for for TV films. So he did a, so he would oscillate between TV films and actual like you know film films, um, and and then till Jaws: The Revenge, and then he just like nope, I guess I'm just going to keep doing TV films. So yeah. Um, all right. So the first three segments of this, the first three chapters, uh, were written by Christopher Crow. Um, I looked through, uh, he, he has a lot of like, well, maybe not a lot of writing credits, but he wrote the screenplay for the 96 film fear that has, uh, uh, Marky Mark in it, uh, Mr. Wahlberg in it, where he plays a, um, a stalker abusive boyfriend. So I'm glad that he's grown as an actor since then, whatever. Um, and then he also wrote the screenplay for the last of the Mohicans. So that's wildly different. Uh, he did one teleplay for an anthology series called the dark room, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a second. Cause, um, that kind of has some ties to this film kinda. And then here's something I found random trivia. He, um, Christopher Crowe created the cheap trick band logo. And, you know, you might be asking yourself, like, I know I've seen that and you Google it. It's like where it like that's the word cheap trick, like printed like six times. It looks like a typewriter, like that screwed up like over and over again. Um, I'm like, oh, you, you created that. Like, that's just, it just looks like a typewriter font. Yeah. It's, it's, it's nothing all too special, but I, I guess it's memorable. They still use it to this day. Yeah. I mean, sure. Right. <laughs> Uh, did you have anything for uh, Christopher Crow? 
Uh, he created um, the the Untouchables show, uh, and he also did a, BA, a BL Striker, which I believe that was a Burt Reynolds show. I was trying to hmm. um, pull that up, but yeah, I believe that was Burt Reynolds that was the lead in that. He, um, but yeah, that's pretty much all I had for notes uh, that were of worthy. Okay. So then the fourth segment um, is written by uh, Jeffrey Bloom, who did also a teleplay for the anthology series Darkroom. And then he did uh, an 87 screenplay for the film Flowers in the Attic, um, which I don't know if I've seen that one, but I know that that story is just, it's horrific. Like it's a a VC Andrews uh, novel about kids stuck in an attic that are being slowly poisoned by their mother, if I remember right, through cookies. Um, yeah, so that's about all I got for him. I don't know if you have anything else for Mr. Bloom, which, again, his last name is Bloom, and he wrote the screenplay for Flowers in the Attic. Do you think maybe he felt a personal like need to, to like, it's, 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 in, it's in my name. I have to do this. I have to bloom with Flowers in the Attic. Yeah, uh, fun enough connection, but no, I, I didn't have any extra notes for him on that one either. What if I was like, he is the father of Orlando Bloom? You'd be like, what? Like, that's not true. I just... <laughs> um so yeah that's uh so um i wanted to mention the 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 score in this um which at times in the first segment i'm just gonna throw out there while i'm thinking about it because it was in my notes that got wiped out because my phone hates me um the first the first segment some of the music you sounded very friday 13th to me in like a good way uh but the the person who did the score for the whole thing his name's craig safin um he is he has done some other things uh so he he did scores for other films uh 1978's Corvette Summer which is the one with Mark Hamill that he Mark Hamill made that film before Empire Strikes Back and got into an accident and messed his face up so that's why people remember that film not because of the score uh 1981's Wolfen um he did Nightmares in 83 and then um here's the thing that's going to blow your mind here are you ready for this are you ready to get your mind blown hit me so 83 uh, film nightmares, which the, the second segment spoiler deals with like a, a person trying to beat a video game. And then it turns out that things aren't exactly what they seem to be. Craig Safin did the score for 1984's the last Starfighter, in which somebody is playing a video game does really well, really well at it. It turns out there's something much bigger going on with the success of the video game, like arcade machine. That's a badass connection. I, I, I'm glad that you found that because I, I didn't, unfortunately I did not um, look into the music part of this. It was just kind of one of those things I forgot to do. No, no, no. Like, that's awesome. It's just like when I was watching the credits, I was like, Craig safe. And why do I know this? And it was like, one of those things where I was almost like last starfighter. Like it just, it just showed up in my head and I had to, I had to text a couple people because this is, this is a, this is such a, like an oddly specific piece of trivia that had like how many composers, had 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 they done music for films in which uh, somebody is playing an arcade machine in the eighties that once they successfully beat it the game comes alive. Dude, this is a very it's like it's like um, what was it um oh what's his name oh shoot you're gonna you're gonna laugh at me the gentleman who directed the Shawshank Redemption I always like why do I always fail on his name every single time um. Geez, you're gonna hit me with a question I wasn't prepared for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he did the mist. Nothing new there. Um, say what? That's a nothing new there. You, yeah, you yeah, hit yeah. me with uh, questions like this before. No, it's I know his name. I just gosh darn it. Uh, it was directed by Frank Darabont. It's like um when when um, Frank Darabont says I you know, he says I have a niche of doing um uh period piece Stephen King films involving prisons. 
thing, <laughs> you know, because he did Shawshank of the Green Mile. Craig Safin has a, a niche of doing 80s films in which arcade machines come to life, you know. <laughs> so I thought that was great. Um, and he also did Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, The Dream Master. Like, he wrote new music for that, but used some of the themes from the other films. Nice, yeah. And uh, I see that he worked for, uh, on an episode of Tales from the Crypt and a couple of the... 80s versions of the Twilight Zone as well. So oh, there's a nice little connection. See, I didn't even, I, I was, my mind was already gone with uh, Last Starfighter. So I didn't even look that far. So thank you for picking that up. So, all right. Um, so let's get, uh, there's four sections here. The first chapter is called Terra and Topanga, um, you know, which I think that was a subplot of Boy Meets World. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, yeah, who do you have in the cast here that you want to talk about? Okay. Cause uh, our, our main is, uh, main actress here is a, Christina Reigns, uh, she plays Lisa. She was also in The Sentinel. And then 38 episodes of some show called Flamingo Road. That's all I had for her. Yeah, I looked it up. The Flamingo Road was actually like a nighttime soap opera, which, you know, like you think about like Dynasty and all the other stuff. So that was kind of a thing for a minute. Um, I wrote down The Sentinel because that movie's creepy as all get out. Um, and when she got to like age 40, she retired from acting and wanted to actually become a nurse dealing with more like... Um, people that were dealing with dialysis and like kidney things. So she had, she did her thing. Um, and then she moved on. So yeah, I don't have a whole lot for her either. Yeah. And then, uh, next we have, uh, Joe Lambit, Lambi, Lambi. Um, he plays Phil, her husband, uh, 228 episodes of the edge of night. Um, and then a bunch of other TV work. Yeah. Didn't really uh, recognize him from anything else, but yep. Yeah, I, a lot of TV soap operas, and then I also wrote three episodes of MacGyver. So I, that's, you know, again, I hate trying to boil down someone's career, but nothing really jumped out at me other than, you know, the beautiful mane of MacGyver. Yeah. So, and then moving on, uh, the next one that I think is notable here is uh, Lee Ving. Um, he plays uh, Hen William Henry Glazer. Um, he is the killer in this. Um, he was in Flashdance. He was in Clue as Mr. Body. And there is a connection that I want to save for the next segment, if if I could. That's please. fine. Uh, so um, I have I have two other ones for this segment. Uh, I, I'll mention Anthony James, who's a store clerk. He was the one packing heat. He just passed away a month ago, by the way, like almost to the day. Uh, he was in High Plains Drifter, Burn Offerings. And then if you recall, in Naked Gun 2.5, he was Hector Savage. He was the one that was trying to break into... Um, uh, Priscilla Presley's apartment and Frank Drabin ends up putting the fire hose in his face and he starts inflating full of water and explodes out in the hallway. As soon as I saw his face as the clerk, I was like, I've seen this dude in a naked gun movie and yep. I don't know which one it is. Cause he, cause she starts singing memories in the shower and he like starts like singing along with her. And at first she's not noticing anything weird. And then he then starts belting out with his part and she screams <laughs> like, so that's why I recognize him. I'm like, that guy's from naked gun two and a half. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I didn't have any extra notes for him. I, I actually ended up leaving him off. Um, uh, who, who do you have next? William Sanderson, which, you know, we got to mention him. He's the gas station attendant. He was in Blade Runner. Uh, he, th this is a fun tie back to, um, we were talking during the Bard. Again, I, I keep bringing that up to the episode because Terry loved it so much. I had mentioned the, the um, sitcom from the 80s, Newhart. William Sanderson was the, the Larry, and he was the one that said, hi, I'm Larry. This is my brother, Daryl. This is my other brother, Daryl, which I know you don't know what that is, but that was a big line from that show. And he was in a lot of Newhart. 
Um, he's very much recognizable. Like every time you see him, like, like great character actor. Um, I, I love William Sanderson. Uh, he just actually said as of May 13th, he retired from acting. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I, I, I've seen him in so much stuff. He's, he's, uh, like you said, a great character actor. He's played so many bit roles. I remember him from an episode of married with children. Uh, like he was in, uh, 38, uh, 36 episodes of Deadwood. Um, what I, I knew him from the most was, uh, 39 episodes of true blood. He was the, the, uh, sheriff in that. Okay. Yeah. I saw, I saw the Deadwood and true blood stuff in there. I've not seen either one of those shows, so I didn't want to speak to something I hadn't seen, but I love William Sanderson. Like he just, he always has like the unassuming face, but I'm going to guess that, uh, he's capable of malice if he was in true blood and Deadwood. Just going to throw that out there. <laughs> but yeah, he's done. He, he's like, you know, he's had a good career and he actually put out a book. I forget the title of it now, but it was basically like, like, um, Oh, it's that guy. I know. Like basically like he's just acknowledging that he's a character actor, but the world is better for having William Sanderson in those films. Like Blade Runner, very memorable, you know, like just, and it, when he popped up in this, I was excited. Cause I, I like, I like William Sanderson. Yeah. It pissed me off that IMDb, almost like left him off the list. He was yeah. at like the very bottom. I was like, wait a minute. He's a pretty big character. If you consider what the story plays out to be. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you, did you have anybody else for the first segment? I do not. Okay. Segment two, the Bishop of battle. We have, um, Emilio Estevez as JJ Cooney. Um, whatever happened to him? I'm, I'm just kidding. I love Estevez. I could have written down every single thing of his that I love, but I have to mention my max maximum overdrive, which is a batshit crazy film. And he's no one in that film was good, but that film is great. Like I, and I, we talked about that actually recently with the incredible world of horse four with Pat Hingle. So got to mention maximum overdrive. Uh, I got to mention young guns. I love that movie when I saw it, like growing up, it probably isn't good now, but I love him as Billy the kid. And I also want to mention free Jack, uh, just because that movie is also kind of stupid, but I love it. But I, I love Emilio Estevez. Yeah, he's a very talented guy and very multifaceted. Um, you know, outside of doing like the Brat Pack stuff of, uh, you know, Breakfast Club and uh, St. Elmo's Fire, which everybody would know him from then. He did, obviously, Mighty Ducks. Um, but the one thing that I absolutely loved that he did was a movie called Wisdom. Uh, he wrote and directed this film as well. And he, uh, he was a, he's a teenage, like an, uh, like a teenage guy, um, who is fed up with banks foreclosing on farms and houses. So he goes and starts blowing up those records because at that time, everything was still on paper and it's still filed away. And, uh, he was kind of like a vigilante, but for the people, you know, I think I've seen this film. Like I, the, I don't recall anything about it. I, I was looking through information about him and I, I guess at the time of this, he was like mid twenties and he was like one of the youngest people to have uh, written and directed a, like a feature film that was produced by Hollywood. Um, so that's awesome. Like, uh, and I know his dad, um, uh, Martin Sheen, we talked about like how, like he had a lot more to do. Like, not that, you know, you, you don't, you don't shit on Charlie Sheen because that guy, he did some great stuff too. And then got a little weird, but you know, I still love him. It just feels like Emilio always had like 
different aspirations. And even to the point of like, I remember when I was still working on Blockbuster years ago, um, that film Bobby had come out and I was like, holy shit, he wrote and directed this. Uh, and it was about Bobby Kennedy and it got good reviews. It just did terrible and it almost destroyed him financially. So maybe that's why we haven't seen him out in the public eye doing a whole lot anymore. Um, I just know that I feel like there's so much nostalgia for the mighty ducks, which by the way, here's something you might, you guys might not know about me. I've never seen any of those films. Um, you would think that there would be something else with him. Like, I, I think he, I think he's primed to come back. I think that I, I'd love to see something else with Emilio Estevez. It's funny you say that because he is filming um, the Mighty Ducks series right now. So there's like a 10 episode show that's coming out and he's uh, reprising his role, his role as a um, coach Bombay. Okay. I just, I don't know. Like we talk, I think you and I've talked about, there's just certain movies that kind of pass you by in terms of like what age you were when they were coming out. So they just kind of skip past you. The Mighty Ducks ones skip right by me, just like the Sandlot. Never seen it all the way through. Kind of okay with that. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, yeah. it's, it's, it, 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 there's a lot of people that will front sell movies. And when you finally see them, you're like, all right, I'm 36 years old this doesn't hit me like it would have a six-year-old back when you were watching it for the first time. <laughs> yeah. So, but Emilio Estevez, awesome. I, I love him. Like, and, and you mentioned breakfast club. Of, of course he's great in that too, especially there's, there's the, um, the montage of when they get high in the library and he just, he's just running around. And he starts, he just screams real loud and causes the glass to break. It makes no sense, but it's fun. Yeah. He's, he's great. Um, he was definitely, uh, the inspiration for me to see this movie in the first place. Cause I've always liked him and everything I've ever seen. And, uh, I think he's, I think he's a fun actor because he's so multifaceted. Yeah. So who else do you have besides Mr. Estevez for the Bishop of battle? So next, uh, we got Billy Jane. Uh, he plays Zach Maxwell. Uh, this is, uh, this is JJ's buddy. Um, he did a horror film in the eighties called bloody birthday, which is ridiculous. Um, he played a small bit role in Beastmaster. He also was in Cujo. And the movie I love him in because he's so ridiculous and it's kind of a 80 sex comedy is uh, just one of the guys. This movie is hilarious. And if you have not seen it, I will let you borrow it. Well, that's the one where the, what was it? The girl is going to be on the football team, right? Is that? Yep. Is that and, it? Okay. And, well, no, not on the football team. Um, she just goes to write a college paper for her newspaper because she's uh, she aspires to be a journalist um and fun fact her name is terry <laughs> all right well you know you, you got it recognized right so um no, i have what i have for him he was also one episode of tales from the dark side um i did write down bloody birthday i'm sure i've seen this film the cover art with um the fingers being lit as candles is is very iconic um but yeah that's all i got for him yeah so uh mary claire uh, Costello is who I have next. Uh, she plays Adele Cooney. Uh, Cooney, I'm sorry. Uh, this is JJ's mom. Uh, not very much that I knew here. Um, she was in 15 episodes of the Waltons and uh, Adventures of Buckaroo. Or I'm sorry, Buckaroo Bonsai Across the Eighth Dimension. Never seen this, but apparently it's an 80s staple for people. It is, and I don't recall. I, I, I yeah, I've seen I've seen Buckaroo Bonsai. I don't remember anything about it. Um, but yeah, that's one that's kind of getting more and more cult, uh, following. Um, 
And uh, one thing I wrote, wrote down about her, she was in a film in 71 called Let's Scare Jessica to Death, which I know I've heard that title before, and I know that's a it's a more of a psychological horror film. Hmm. I'll have to check it out. But she doesn't play a very big role in this, but yeah, so then moving on, her husband uh, is played by Louis or this one's a card for me. So Glam Balvo. I think Balvo? it's, I think it's Glam uh, Balvo. uh, GM Balvo. I think, I think unless I, was there an L at the beginning of that? If so, I probably messed it up anyway. It, I, it, it's I, Lewis. He plays Jerry. Yeah. He plays Jerry. So this is her fa- uh, his father is uh, airplane Two, uh real genius. Uh, one episode of the eighties version of twilight zone. And then um, the Richard Pryor movie, uh, see no evil, hear no evil. Um, Gene Wilder is in that too. It's a it's a funny ass movie. <laughs> yeah, because like Richard Pryor's blind and Gene Wilder's deaf. Is that the whole thing? And they're they're teaming up because I think they witness a crime or something. And they're stuck together, so they work together because together they have a complete set of senses. If I remember right. Yeah, it's it's a funny ass movie. Uh, somebody gets murdered, and they both have some kind of aspect of what happened, but not fully together. So yeah, it's real fun. <laughs> um. So yeah, I, all I had about was the A6 Twilight Zone. So um, anybody else that you have listed here for Bishop of Battle? Yeah, a uh, recognizable face, but we didn't get to see his face. Uh, James Tolkien. Uh, he yeah. plays the voice of the bishop. This was surprising to me because you hear, he reminds me like when he's saying his little bits about, I'm the Bishop of Battle. There's 13 levels and, you know, um, and I don't know, refried beans and special sauce, whatever he says about each of the levels. Um, I kept thinking of like um, Toby Jones a little bit because um, it was a little bit more like meek and smaller sounding, but he's, he is, you know, um, the principal from back to the future and that he yelled at everybody. And also he's detective Hugh Lubick from masters of the universe. Uh, so he, he picked uh, some great projects and then some not so great projects. Yeah, he's in a lot of memorable 80s movies. He was mm-hmm. also in Wolfen, War Games, and Top Gun. So he's a very memorable face from the 80s, and uh, he plays a lot of ridiculous roles, usually the hard ass. Yeah, uh, his his last film role, he's still with us, but the last film role he was in was uh, Craig S. Zoller's Bone Tomahawk from a few years ago. He's in it for a second playing a drunk piano player, and you, it's like, you, I looked at it, I was like, that character... The, the, he only had a couple lines, but it's like, why do I know this guy? And it was him. So yeah, I, I like uh, James Tolkien. Um, and I, uh, was surprised that he was the voice of the Bishop. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't get that from the voice, but of course there's like some kind of a uh, layering done there too. But yeah, that's uh that's all I had for cast on that episode or uh, yeah. chapter rather. So the, the next one we have, here's the benediction. Uh, so we have Lance Hendrickson, never heard of him. No, he plays McLeod. Uh, He's 80 years old, 80. Like I, I understand that like people age cause you know, that's what happens. I, I mean, I understand like I'm 41, so that should not surprise me that he's 80, but he's 80. Like even in this, he looked, he looked old then. I don't like Lance Henderson being 80. Like I just want him to be like forever, like 50 ish. That's all I want. I want him to be just. I want him, I want Lance Henderson to exist forever and just be 50 ish. Can we have that? Can science make that happen? I, I, that would be great because he, back in when he was doing most of those memorable roles that we're going to talk about here, he was so weathered then. I just, I I haven't seen any recent pictures of him, but I I know he does a lot of conventions still. I'm, I'm like almost scared to see 
like anything now like <laughs> it's like what what if you were looking like that then what are we going to see now here in 2020? <laughs> well, because he has like those deep lines in his face. Like, do you, do you just wonder if like a, like a strong gust of wind would like blow him down because his face would catch all the air and it'd puff out? He'd just fall to backwards. Do you think that would happen? Um, yeah, but I love Lance Hendrickson. Like, uh, you know, throw a dart at, at his career and you're going to find amazing stuff. Like, I we could spend the next hour just talking about Lance Hendrickson and it, rightfully so. Um, but I love him. And if you guys don't know who he is, I don't know if I, that would be weird to me. If you, if you're listening to the, the Twilight Zone podcast and your interests in films and horror films and everything, and you've never heard Lance Hendrickson, if not, then I guess you're in for a treat. Yeah, he's awesome. He plays uh, so many different memorable characters from eighties movies in it. Uh, briefly, briefly, uh, he was in a Terminator aliens as Bishop, which is fun. Um, connection there uh near dark which is an absolutely wonderful vampire film Pumpkinhead and hard target yeah and he was in um tv series on fox it was a spinoff of the x-files called millennium that was darker that was really interesting and then uh he actually voiced one of the um major military uh players in the mass effect series so every time you heard him like that's goddamn lance hendrickson and i I loved it like he just has has a voice he has a presence and he was a welcome sight here because I didn't even know he was in this film, even though I know I had seen this as a kid. Um, spoiler, the one involving video games is the only segment I really remembered. I wonder why. Um, but yeah, he was he it was it was wonderful to see him in this. Yeah, he, he's awesome. Um, he's on my bucket list of uh, actors to meet. So, yeah, it was a real treat to see him in this. Uh, and so next we have uh, Tony Plana Plana. I think, um, it's, I think it's plain. I'm sure there's supposed yeah. to be like, I'm sure there's like supposed to be like hyphenations in there. Um, but, uh, yeah, he plays father Luis del Amo. Um, the only things that I really recognize him from were born in East LA. And, uh, he was in, uh, the movie JFK, which I think is, uh, a stone movie, right? Yeah. That's an Oliver Stone film. You're right. So that's all I really had for him as far as notes. Yeah. He's still working, doing a lot of stuff. Like uh, he was in the TV series, ugly Betty. Um, but the one thing I wrote down here, he was Hefe and three amigos. Like I, I love the three amigos. I don't know how well it's aged, but I love that movie. It's been a while since I've seen it. So any chance to mention three amigos. Yeah. And I, uh, that's pretty much all I had for notes on this chapter. Uh, did you have anybody? Yeah. So um, let's see here. Um, Ro- Robin Gamble as Bishop. <laughs> this is going to get confusing as we go along. Uh, he was in the six twilight zone and then Rosemary Campos is the mother. All years I want to note her. She had three roles. This, she was a maiden Rocky four and then one episode of Hill street blues. That's a weird career, but whatever, you know? Yeah. Well. At least she had some kind of memorable movies that she was I in. Mean, I don't know. She worked <laughs> with Lance Ford, Hendrickson and Sylvester Stallone. So better than me, you know, <laughs> so good on her. Uh, so that's who I, that's what I had for the benediction. The last section here uh, is night of the rat. Um, so yeah, the first person I have here, and I'm sure this is the first on your list too, even though IMDB doesn't list us the right way. Veronica Cartwright as Claire Houston, um, obviously an alien. Uh, so she was an alien, uh, Hendrickson was aliens, uh, twilight zone connection. She was in the season three episode of the original series. Uh, I sing the body electric. I know she's done some other things, but that was the two things I wanted to hit. 
Yeah, uh, I had her from. Uh, she was in the Birds. Um, uh, she was in Candyman: Farewell to the Flesh, which is the second installment, and then she was also in Wisdom as well with Emilio Estevez. Oh, perfect. Um, so then the other person I have here is Richard Massor or Massor, however you pronounce it, Steve Houston. This is going to sound really dumb. It's like, I recognize this face and I'm like, I know this guy. This guy's a character actor. Like he, you know him, the mustache, the, just the, the, the you know, his square head. Um, and then I looked at his uh, cast listing and I was like, God damn it. He's Clark in the thing. He's the jackass that lets the dog in the pen with the other dogs. I don't know why I didn't put those two together until I saw the credits. I think it's it's because he's a lot more reserved in, in that role. Like he's just more monotone and he plays a little he, he slow. Doesn't stand out. He comes across as like maybe not like you know. He comes across a little slow in that. And this one, he's such a prick. Yeah, and then he he, he trimmed down the facial hair to only a mustache for almost every other role that I've seen him in. Yeah. So I know he's done other things. Do you have any other notable credits for him? But I mean, you got to mention the thing. Oh hell yeah, I do. Of course. Um, he was in License to Drive, uh, which uh, the Corys were in that. I love that movie. Um, he was in My Girl, Encino Man, and everybody should know him as Stan in It, the oh, uh, nineteen ninety right. yeah. Stephen King adaptation. That's right. You're right. That's a good call. So, uh, did you have anybody else listed um, here? Uh, well, I mean, uh, yeah, I I could put uh, Albert Hagu. Um, he plays, uh, Mel Kiefer. He's the, uh, and the, um, what do you call it? The, the, the rat killer. You know, he comes to You're the, exterminator, the, rat, the yeah. exterminator. Yeah. Um, he did an episode of tales from the dark side, mm -hmm. 131 episodes of fame, but he's a, he was a composer too. He actually composed almost all the music for the original, the Grinch that stole Christmas. Yeah, so he had a bigger career, I think, as a composer than an actor. Um, I just have to mention, just because this is the bait of my existence, he played a psychiatrist in Space Jam, so there's that. Um, you know, but whatever. Uh, I thought, for whatever reason, I thought he was like one of those recognizable like character actors. I'm like, you, he's, he's speaking with such a, um affected accent, and he has such a, like, a weird presence. I was like, is this a stunt casting? Is this someone I should know that's from, like, the earlier days of, like, horror? And I thought maybe I'd find something there, and I didn't see anything. But the fact that he was a composer was surprising to me, and I really, I thought that was cool. Yeah, it, it was kind of uh, a real treat, because you saw a lot of things that he was connected to, but it was only because they kept on using uh, the, was it the, you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch? They used that in so many different movies and shows. So he got he had all these IMDb credits for just <laughs> having that song appear in something. <laughs> I mean, money's money, right? Get paid for that. I appreciate it. So, um, yeah. Uh, so uh, where do we start with this? Uh, before we get into the segments improper, so we should say that this film's a little weird in the sense that it was never intended to be a film. Uh, it was more that... The rumor went forever that th these were actually uh, scripts that were actually put together for the anthology series, The Dark Room. However, I guess one of the executive producers, uh, Andrew Mirisich, um, said on the commentary track for the Shot Factory release, which I didn't have time to watch with the commentary. So I'm sure I would have learned more, but, you know, I didn't. Um, he said that this was actually for an unnamed um, series that NBC was going to put together, um, but then they scrapped it. So they added a little bit more money, pumped it up to an R rating, and got these out the door uh, as a film, as an anthology film. Since the two writers involved both wrote scripts for The Dark Room, I can see why there's that connection there. 
Um, all I remember about the dark room is that the intro sequence scared me to death as a kid. And it's probably nothing important. It's probably nothing big, but I was terrified of the music and the intro. And I remember there was, um, there was adaptation of a Stephen King story about toy army men coming to life. If I remember right, that's all I remember about that series. So knowing that there was like a loose connection to the dark room, that could have been cool, but that's not accurate. Um, because these were, these were kind of four stories that were intended for television, but then pumped up to make into a movie. This is the first anthology film I think I've seen that doesn't have a frame to it. It doesn't have any type of frame story. It's just, it's just a movie with four stories. Yeah, there's no connective tissue uh, as far as like what usually you would see for a lot of anthology type movies. You know, like Creepshow has the comic book. Uh, Tales from the Dark, Dark Side, the movie has the child reading the book to um, his captor. Uh, like there's always that wraparound. We didn't get that in this. And that's why it kind of felt a little weird in, in comparison to those films that we would typically know. Yeah, I thought that I thought that sleep and nightmares was going to be the thing that connected everything, but uh, that didn't really pan out either. Like, I mean, kinda. Um, the The first segment doesn't really show that, other than the father talking to the daughter about like, well, you need to go to sleep, close your eyes. Second one had the buddy say he had a nightmare. Third one starts with a nightmare, and then the fourth one, um, the little girl can't sleep at night, and the mother can't sleep either because of shit going on. But I think those are all kind of loose associations. I was really, really trying to find a, a, a theme that tied everything together, uh, but I couldn't. Um, doesn't mean that doesn't mean that I don't mind just a, an anthology as an anthology. But usually, if this is going to be something put in a theater, I was expecting some kind of button to all of it, and that just never showed up. Yeah, I was I was trying to make connections myself too. Um, there are some very small connections that I think if if you if you were watching this and didn't have any of the backstory about the actors in it, you may not notice it. But it, considering the fact that we do as much research as we do about the shows and movies that we talk about on here, um, we are able to find it. So and we will connect, have that connective tissue when we need to talk about it. I guess. Yeah. So. Um. Like, how do we want to approach this? Like rapid fire. Like, so chapter one is Taryn Topanga. Uh, it's, it's a lady, um, Lisa, who, uh, she is addicted to cigarettes. Uh, so she decides that she's going to leave their, uh, weirdly unfinished house on the middle of the night. And this is in like the early eighties in like, you know, California. So she's just going to go out in the middle of the night in the Canyon to go pick up cigarettes. But in the meantime, there is a killer loose uh, and the radio stations are all talking about this killer. So even though that there is a known threat in the area, she's like, I got to get my nicotine. So she goes out to do that. And she's so driven by nicotine that she doesn't realize that she has no gas in her car. And then clearly she can't get back home because she doesn't have enough gas. Hilarity ensues. Yeah. So like she gets, she finally gets the cigarettes, notices that she's out of gas. But now in that like panic of trying to find a gas station, she's like, of course, telling herself that she's stupid and <laughs> that this was all like a, a really bad venture. Um, but when she gets closer and closer to home, she finally finds a gas station that is open. Yeah. And then that's when she pulls up and that's when we get William Sanderson come out and being like, Hey, uh, you know, do you want gas? And she's like, yeah. And, uh, he's acting a little weird and she's acting a little weird, uh, cause it's William Sanderson. So you don't know if he's going to be like the nicest guy in the world or a killer. 
Um, which side note, whenever he showed up, I'm like, don't make him the killer. Please don't make William Sanderson the killer. That was my one like begging to the movie. Uh, but as he goes to put gas in the car, he actually doesn't. And then he asks for her, like for the money. And as she has the window rolled down a little bit, he breaks the glass to get her out and she struggles. He pulls a gun and fires a shot. And lo and behold, the real killer is, uh, in the car the entire time. Uh, and she's freaked out and, um, yeah, she goes home and the husband's like, Oh, so did you get cigarettes? Which she clearly has in her hand. And she's like, Nope, I didn't. So I got to ask you, was this an extended PSA to stop smoking? It it definitely felt (laughs) like that. Um, I guess if you you were trying to scare the shit out of people, this would be one that you would want to show them like the hard edge one. Like, all right, you didn't get the message uh, during your Saturday morning cartoons. Here's the, here's the adult version now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just, this segment felt like, um, it felt like the urban legend of like, you know, Oh, the guy's loose, but like he has a hook for a hand. And then like she hears something and parks a car and finds the hook on like the door, you know, like that's what this whole thing felt like to me. And I'm not saying that's bad. It just felt very pedestrian and it didn't feel like much of a twist. I think that her smoking, was the through line through this. And that's okay. Like that's, that's an okay thing to show like the, the length that she was going to go to and that this is going to be the shock to her system. I'd be like, you know, I risked my life and my family's well being to go get cigarettes. Maybe I shouldn't smoke. I'm okay with that. It's just, you know, it was an okay segment. I was glad to see William Sanderson. Um, I think, uh, Christina Raines does a good job actually as Lisa, and um and to see anthony james be the store clerk and he's like well i'm packing heat it's like you're just going to show a loaded gun to a customer cool different time yeah uh, yeah definitely and the cigarettes were actually out on the sales floor too so definitely <laughs> yeah. <a different> time. <laughs> yeah uh but the music here that, that felt very friday 13th to me and i i dug it i there were a lot of elements that worked for me on this one i i really enjoyed this segment um i not to tip my hand, but like this was one of the stronger of the stories for me. Okay. Um, there was just a lot of elements that were fun um, and also like more, I guess, uh, fear inducing. Uh, there were uh, some really cool shots in this too. Um, when earlier in the, uh, the chapter, uh, the sheriff's uh, a deputy gets taken out by the killer, and it's so jalo to me, like the frame shots that they do where the blood is right, uh, like running down his hands and we see the knife close up and digging into his, uh, and that it felt very like, um, uh, you know, uh, giallo type to me. Um, okay. a lot of like, you know, Italian crime. That's fair. And I, I skipped over the, like the weirdness of the cop being like, I'm going to let her go. It's like, what's going on? It's like, she's young and attractive. Whatever he says, I'm like, Oh, that didn't age well at all. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a fun segment. It's just in terms of an anthology story for me, it it didn't do anything new. Like, it, I mean, I understand that you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time, but this felt like a campfire story, which I guess is okay. It just, you know, if this is going to be your first, like, salvo on this movie, I was I was hoping for something stronger that had more of a twist to it. Yeah, and uh, that's fair enough. I, I to the point where I had seen this finally, um, I had seen other ad- adaptations of that same urban legend, and the 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 the, the 
coined name for it really is a always check your backseat or yeah. remember to check your backseat. And uh, I, I think it was fun to see it in a different, um, like in a different play out, you know, like we saw a different outcome because every other time was, nope, you didn't see it and you got your head hacked off like in the movie Urban Legend. That's fair. So, um, yeah, any other any other uh, notes of note uh, for the, the Terra and Topanga? No, I, I, I thought it was a, a kick-ass story, and I, I liked the ending, and uh, it still it, it still got me. It, even after like watching it like a year and a half later, it still got me. It got my wife, too. She was like, holy crap, I did not see that one coming. So, yeah, fun story. Good. Got it, got it. All right, so I'll let you um, – what, what's the – here, summarize the Bishop of Battle. Okay, so we got J.J. He is a hustler. Um, him and Zach have this, uh, this deal where they go to different arcades and they hustle people. Uh, they play the game of, oh, hey, you, I got some dough, but I don't want to lose it all. Um, let's just start with like some cheap games. And then he ends up building up to take all their money. They go into an arcade that's in a kind of a shady neighborhood. They, when they walk in, they don't look like the, the regs, the regulars. Um, so he picks a game wins. Um, somebody calls him out and they hightail it out of there, but he's still got the money, but he's got a reputation. We know now as being one of the most badass gamers around. Um, so yeah. yeah, he is, he, but he has a mission. His mission is to get as much money as possible so he can take out the Bishop of battle. We should also mention you're, you're waiting to, when we're talking about cast and crew, there was connection for the first segment and the second segment. So we forgot to mention that. Like, so there is a soundtrack to this second segment. That's really kick ass. And I, I, I don't want to step on your, your reveal. Cause I admit this was a fun thing to find out about. Well, the fun thing about uh, JJ as a character is, is the music seems to be a motivation for him. So when he doesn't have those headphones on, he's still like coy and he's still playing the, the long game here. But when he has that music on, it's like he's in the zone. And the first song that we hear, as soon as we see uh, JJ walking down the street, getting getting a game mode, is a song by a band called Fear. Our killer in the last segment is the lead singer of the punk band Fear. I thought that was such a fun connection to just go right into it. Like that, that I'm sure that there wasn't the connective tissue that everybody would have noticed, but I really enjoyed that. <laughs> I was like, yes, this is awesome. It would have been great if like that, the, the individual members of the band fear were the reasons for all the problems going on in all four segments. Like the lead singer gets killed in the first, like the drummers, the Bishop of battle. <laughs> it would just been great to find out that all four of them, like someone was driving the truck in the third one. That would have been hilarious, but I know that's not the case. I would have loved that though. Yeah, that would that would have been kind of fun. Uh, like if we if there had been a, a connective tissue that everybody had been scratching their head about, uh, it's like nobody who knows about punk. It would have been that. Like the, <laughs> like the lead guitar players dressed up in a giant rat suit. Like, <laughs> like <this. laughs> um, yeah, so there there is um, and we'll get to the end of the, the the segment here in a second. There is a certain like I was trying to talk to my wife about this that there is a certain like. Um, brief moment in time 
where going to the arcade and putting your quarter up and calling people out was a big deal. And this was uh, like released in 83. So this is before the big um, video game crash that came in like 84, 85 with the home consoles. But still, video games are growing, growing, growing. Um, and this is not a culture that... Uh, it's it, like credit to this film that they kind of tapped into it because it was a very, very small window. And I can remember like, even though I was like, you know, five, when this film came out, there was still that notion of like with the quarter games, you were as good as you, you know, you, you, you had to put up and shut up. If you wanted to keep playing a game, there were no, um, no continues, no like restarts you, you, and for someone to be this good, meant something and with JJ being a basically a pool shark in this and him and I also want to point out like I thought it was weird that like there was a warrior style gang that was like running like they had control of this arcade that they went into like they didn't officially have control but it was like this weird network of like yeah yeah I got his stake you know go ahead and it's like that got complicated um but I just like that snapshot of arcade culture because I felt like that it may not be accurate, but it felt right. And I think, I think there's something to be said there. Yeah. And it definitely seemed like this was, um, when he went into this arcade, it was somebody else's turf. Like yeah. these are their games and you're challenging them on their, their, um, their court, you know? Yeah. And then, so, um, after they, they haul house out of there, which I just want to mention the power mixtape is also a big deal. Like you've got to have the right tunes while you're playing, uh, you know, like, uh, even today still, but it's like, you had to have a uh, Futurama did an episode, um, where they did like a, what if, like, what if, like, um, like they called them the Nintendians, I think attacked earth and, and fry was available to, uh, t- take them out because it was basically space invaders. And he sat in this tank, uh, listening to rush and drinking like a slushy and like taking out the, like the invaders. Cause they are following a repetitive pattern. He's like, I got this. Like, that was a thing. And I, I thought that was great that this, this uh, film leaned into that too. But whenever they get to like JJ's home turf, it almost felt like say by the bell where everyone's like, Oh, Hey, it's JJ. What's going on? Hey, Zach Morris. Yeah. Like everybody's crowding around him. As soon as he's like, uh, got his tokens and he's ready to go. He's like, no, I'm taking on the Bishop. I'm going to go all the way tonight. Everybody's like, hell yeah, let's do this. But they, they kicked the one kid off the machine. Did you notice that? It's like, get out of here, kid. And then they, they, they lift him up, move him aside from the machine. He's pissed. And then JJ's like, hold my jacket. The kid's like, I guess so. It's like, no, you throw that in the trash. He took your quarter. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like I'd be pissed. I'd be pissed as hell, man. Like, it, but you know, especially like, um, you, you, I don't know when I was a kid and I took up the arcade that was mine for as long as I wanted it to be. Yeah. And you go to these, these barcades. Now they put limitations on how long you can play the game. It's like, no dude, if, if this was a quarter game, you know, I'd be running this all night if I liked it. Yeah. I, I understand limitations though, because there's just times where it's like, okay, you've been playing, you've been playing NBA jam for three hours. Can I please have this for a second? Um, you know, but, uh, what was brief aside, what was your arcade game of choice though? Like what was your poison? Like what was the game that you gravitate towards? Uh, it was, uh, uh, Marvel versus Capcom two. Good call. Uh, mine is a little older. It's a, it's a, a tube shooter called gyrus that I absolutely adore. Um, there was a local barcade here in Cleveland that had a machine. I had a gyrus machine and I, and I, 
my interest in that bar immediately declined the moment they moved it to another location. <laughs> I love gyros. Yeah, I'm just like, I want to give you money. Why'd you move the machine to Columbus? Because I'm not driving that far down yet to go play that game. But yeah, I love the snapshot of a gamer culture at the time. JJ's kind of an asshole, but he's good at what he does. So you get in his mind, which I also want to point out, like I, he has a struggle at home where his parents don't understand. Like, you know, he's like, if I could just finish the Bishop of Battle to get to the 13th level, then all things will be different. It's like, they're like, no, it won't. Like, you're still an idiot that's not doing anything other than playing video games. And at that time, they weren't wrong. Yeah, well, and, you know, and all he needed to do was move the Beverly Hills, and then he would have been fine, and his, he could have moved in with his aunt and uncle, you know. Yeah, like, I mean, he could have just waited for Fred Savage and, and went cross-country to California, you know, and competed in the video game championship. Um, so, yeah, the whole thing is that we find out the Bishop of Battle is this game that uh, is really ahead of its time at the time. that had 13 levels, and the 13th level had been rumored to exist or not. And I love that there's this constant urban legend of like, yeah, I heard some kid got to the 13th level twice out in Jersey. And you don't know if JJ's is making it up to justify his own motivation or if it's something he heard. Um, but I like that he, he, he thinks, and he knows he's good enough to get to that 13th level. And, you know, and I'm not quite sure if this, at this point that it, it, it was exposed yet, but there were some games that had come out, that were broken you were not supposed to beat them they they were as soon as you got to a point you actually like broke the game and you had to restart it from the beginning case in point donkey kong the original game did not have an ending you actually put it in some weird limbo that you had to restart the arcade yeah that the kill screen right so that's what you're talking about uh there's a wonderful documentary called the king of kong uh fistful quarters that deals with donkey kong and competitive gaming in the sense of that where the whole goal was you would get to the kill screen but the the thing was these good gamers could get to the kill screen but it was a matter of how many points you could get before then so you're right like that was a thing uh because you're right because there was there was level progression but all it would do was turn up the intensity and like the severity. Um, basically, because it was a quarter a game, these things were designed just to like what they say, like the average game of Donkey Kong lasted less than like like three minutes or so, even le- less than that. Yeah. So the Bishop of Battle, like saying that there's a 13th level, there was no guarantee that it was, but that that was the promise and JJ was going to do it. Yeah, and I can I can understand like him being the the supreme gamer that he was, and he was stealing money and everything to like feed his addiction. That like he is an addict. When you see him really uh, in the game while he's listening to his headphones, he's sweating. He's got these like the super intense eyes and that like he is addicted to playing video games. And uh, but the bishop is like his Mount Everest. He can't beat it, and he, he all he wants to do is prove to everybody that I am the most badass gamer that has ever existed. Yeah, so even to the point of breaking into the arcade in the middle of the night, starting the machine up, and playing, and doing well, and getting to the 13th level. And that's when the, the machine starts shaking and quaking and breaking apart, and the, the gun that's in his hand comes away from the machine, and the game comes to life. And all the little... Uh, wireframe enemies start showing up. And to be honest, that effect still holds up really well. I like that a lot. I thought they looked really good still. 
Yeah, and it's fun. It's a it's a it's it's a fun little like uh, idea that the the what I, I mean, I guess they're little spaceships, but uh, they're they're flying out and after him and everything. And then the, his weapon is able to be used against them. So he's shooting at them, and everything around him is taking damage too. So he it, this isn't part of his imagination. Things are actually getting jacked up here. Yeah, and so then you know he. <laughs> He fights it for a bit and then, you know, runs the runs the hell away, which is probably the right decision. But as he's running up through a parking lot, the actual bishop shows up, his big giant face and, you know, telling um, telling Marty that he's go back to school. Um, and, you know, it, it can it, you get the notion that this thing is approaching him and, and like it, it consumes him. And then the end of the end of the bit here um, is his buddy shows up the arcade the next day, which I just want to also point out that. As the parents, his his parents and the friend show up to the arcade, all these kids are chomping the bit to get in. And the guy's like, whoa, 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 I'll let you in, I'll let you in. And he's like, what the hell happened to my arcade? And everything's still destroyed, which I thought was funny. Uh, but Zock looks over and sees that uh, JJ is now the, the, the character inside. He's actually the Bishop of Battle. Like the voice is modulated where it's the original Bishop's voice and Emilio Estevez's voice together. And now he is now part of the game. And that's your ending. Yeah, really interesting the fact that like even when um, the machine busted apart, as soon as he escaped to the the garage, it reassembled. So you see this carnage all around the uh, the arcade, and here's the Bishop of Battle. That's the only game that you can hear in the in the room in that, and they they just see that his face, well, well his body is there for a moment, almost like taunting them, like. I got JJ and then it fades to like the, just the outline of the character. It was, it was such a, it was an, a cool little story here. I, I really dug it. I did too. It's my favorite segment of all of them. And again, I'm not hiding my, uh, it was my favorite segment as a kick. Cause clearly it's the only one I remembered. And the Bishop of battle is this thing that has stuck with people. Um, there is a lot of different synth wave bands that have songs called Bishop of Battle. There, you see footage from this. It's like there's a reason why this works. Um, I guess the the wireframe like um, animations they made almost bankrupt the film, um, which you know makes sense because it was actually I think for '83 there was some crazy things going on that I dug. But again, with the wireframe, it's not even the right word. That's not even the right thing I'm going to be using. What's the word? Vector graphics. They're vector graphics, not wireframe. Um, there is a Star Wars game from the early 80s that uses a uh, vector. Like, so it's like th there's a lot of these older vector games that they look aged in the sense that they can't provide the most detail, but it's always sharp looking and the shapes are very distinct. And these, and this whole game is vector based. And it, so because of that, it's aged better than like, um, I don't know pick a PlayStation one game where it was polygons and like you had three polygons. That was a person like the original resident evil is an ugly ass game. Bishop of battle is not, it still has its own kind of aesthetic and holds up for what it is. Yeah. And I, I think that if anybody is a, a, a huge old school gamer, like played Atari games and that, or, you know, Activision stuff from when they were younger and that, this is one that you have to watch. I think it is, it is it's going to be one of those ones that you're going to see a lot of charm in and you're going to remember those old school days of going to the arcade and then you're going to feel like JJ while he's playing the game and the punk music the punk music is 
so kick ass in combination with this story. Like it is, it's a driving force. It, I'm glad that this story was completely different from the first story because we still had the same writer, we still had the same director, but it felt so different from the mm-hmm. first story. And tying it to punk too, and this is me. I, I'm not. I'm speaking completely out of turn here, so everybody can tell me to get off their lawn or however you want to phrase it. I think that the punk music also kind of like it being into this stuff was very like, it might've been popular like with the kids, but it wasn't popular with the parents. So there was kind of this punk aesthetic of going to the arcade, the spending your money and you, the, the satisfaction is self-driven and screw everybody else. Like, I think there was some kind of like there, there was some opposition there that and I think the soundtrack helped support that. Yeah. And even like some of the lyrical content that was uh, like within the songs that because they even played a black flag song as he uh, is escaping from his bedroom that works so perfectly for the scene that I, I think that this one was soundtrack driven and it, it was really fun to have that aspect layered on top of it. Yeah. So, yeah, this was this was like, uh, you know, the uh, spoiler, my favorite segment and clearly it affected me and. Um, and then the next year there'd be a little film called the last Starfighter That would be more of the positive version of this, <laughs> but yeah, I like the Bishop of battle. Like it's to the point to where if, um, if there was like a freight rags t-shirt of this or whatever, I'd buy it in a heartbeat. Like I kind of, I kind of want it. I kind of want a, a Bishop of battle shirt now, um, just to be that overweight neckbeard dude, you know, with a Bishop of battle shirt. I think that, uh, people only cool people would get it. And that's why I own that shirt. Yeah, you know what? There are even companies out there that will take commissions and then they turn those shirts into their own property and that like we might be able to f- make this work, Paul. Nice. I like <laughs> it. So we'll do it. So the next the next segment's called the benediction. Um I'll 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 run through this. So we got Lance Henderson as McLeod, who is a uh priest. Uh I'm gonna you're going to hate this. I'm going to call him Bishop now from, from here on out for this section, uh, which I think is funny because we just dealt with the Bishop of battle. And now we're dealing with a guy who's actually a member of the Catholic church. Who's lost his faith, but I know he's not a Bishop, but it's Lance Hendrickson too. Anyway, so there's a dream sequence of him. like out in like the Spanish mission, um, somewhere in like Texas, I believe. And he's doing some farming and, uh, a snake like, um, like strikes like a goat, I think, uh, or is it a deer? It's a deer. It's a deer. Deer. Uh, and then also like, I think it bites him as well. And, uh, he, you know, he, you know, it, it's very, it, it, it looks different than the rest of the film. It's very, it's very alarming. He takes a snake and throws it, it disappears. Um, that will pay off later, I guess. And, but you get the notion this whole, this whole segment is kind of told out of order. Um, telling the story of how McLeod, 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 it's McLeod, right? Uh, Bishop, how he lost his faith because of, um, there was a, a family that was under his um, supervision because he had a parish that um, I want to say a kid got shot and um, it was an attempted robbery, if I remember right, by accident. And he just doesn't understand why there basically gets the whole notion of like, why do good things happen or why do bad things happen to good people? And he has a crisis of faith. So he's going to leave to the point to where he's trying to give uh, a, a eulogy 
for this kid. And he kind of gives like a really shitty, like, well, it sucks. I'm sorry. Gotta go. And the family's like losing their mind. And his, and his, uh, his friend, uh, father, uh, Luis Del, Del Amo is like, you need to still watch your flock. And he's like, I can't, I got to get out of here. I don't believe. Um, and there's a line too, where he's like, I don't question your faith. Don't question my lack of it. It's a telling line, but then it's also intercut with him talking to this Bishop, um, you know, another Bishop, uh, about like the, the, uh, evidence of evil. And so then it comes down to him going to take his car and just drive until he runs out of gas and then pick up a job and, and just get moving. And on the way out, um, his friend has a, uh, like a, uh, whole, like a whole can full of holy water. And he's like, I'm going to take this with me. And his buddy's like, uh, that's holy water. He's like, it's tap water, which is a funny line. Uh, and so he starts like driving through like the desert. But in the meantime, very much dual style, like the film with Dennis Weaver. That's awesome. Uh, there's this black Chevrolet with blacked out windows, this, this truck that is being aggressive and stalking him. And, um, yeah, it's the whole thing of him, like thinking about like what led him to this decision to him leaving and his lack of faith. But this, this truck, you, you find out early enough that this thing is stalking him and causing problems with him all along the way. And I for completely forgot about the segment. Um, I, the ending of it's a little stupid. I'm going to throw that out there, but the bulk of this thing is badass. Yeah. It's very, uh, like nerve wracking because he, you know, he's just, he's just trying to do his thing. And every time that he feels like he's safe again, here comes the truck Yeah, again, breathing down his neck. Like, you know, it cuts him off into one scene. Then the next time we see him, it's right on his ass and uh, it pushes him off the road and he gets a flat tire. He's repairing the flat tire and here comes the truck again. It, there is like, there are segments in here where he's, he's still having flashbacks. So his inner demons are still plaguing him too. And all he can do is see this truck coming at him again and again and again. Yeah. And like, so the, the bit, whatever, after the first time he's run off the road, and he's getting back when he gets his, like the tire like popped or whatever. There is, there's a cut where the truck just shows up out of nowhere and it's like right behind him. And it's also should be worthy of mentioning that because of, um, the cameras and the film stock they're using, the truck has its headlights on the entire time. And it's causing this weird, um, multiple like, um, images because the way the film is shot that gives this thing a very, um, very ethereal look to it. Cause you see that you see the, the headlights like sixfold and like, cause the reflections coming into the camera, but the bit when it shows up behind him, that legitimately scared me because the way the film was set up, um, it, I didn't expect that. And it was terrifying, but this becomes this cat and mouse and it's not really cat and mouse because that implies that like, you know, <laughs> that he has an advantage somehow, but no, he keeps getting his car keeps getting beat up. He keeps trying to move forward. This thing keeps showing up and he doesn't have answers. Um, but th- it, it presents to me one of the greatest single moments in a film I've seen of recent memory because it's, um, it is, <laughs> it's so ridiculous where he's, uh, you know, in his car or no, his car's alongside the road. He, this all of a sudden the earth starts shaking, right? And you're like, Oh, something's going to happen. And, 
you see almost Bugs Bunny style, like this, like or Tremor style, this this earth like shifting and moving in a line towards him. And then this truck erupts out of the ground and start and launches towards him, which if you look at the slow-mo, the axle on that truck snaps. Like it just gets broken. Um, like it, that the truck they launched is done for, but it's a movie. It keeps driving. Um, I was not expecting uh tremors truck to show up in this and it doesn't make a lick of sense. And I loved it. Yeah. If we could only see this kind of shit at a monster truck rally, I think everybody <laughs> could be a little bit more invested. <laughs> yeah. Like Gravedigger, Come on. Your name's Gravedigger. Do that. You know? Um, yeah, it's so goddamn stupid and amazing at the same time. It's like, you know, Freddy as a shark on a beach and, uh, was it nightmare four or five <laughs> when you see his, his club just like being a shark fin. Um, it's so ridiculous and I love it. Um, but it comes down to eventually, uh, his, that Lance Henderson ends up throwing the holy water at the truck and it's, it just bamps out. It's like gone. And it's like, that felt a little lackluster to me compared to everything else we just saw. But the whole, the whole crux of the story is that because he had no faith or didn't believe in God, the devil made itself apparent and, and was basically being like, if the devil is real and driving this badass black Chevy that can tunnel underground and do all these other things, then God has to be real. And so he goes back to his parish and that's the story, which I don't mind that ending. I just think that the way that they did the getting rid of the truck felt very cheesy to me. Yeah, it, and but there is like this is so there's so much hidden meaning here. Whoever when they wrote this story, they wanted you to find uh, the uh, the faith aspect being the driving force. Even when he's uh, ri- uh, driven off the road the first time, he has that bumper sticker that's on his uh, on his his fallen off bumper that says "Faith restores peace," and you know that's a red herring for what we are about to see play out throughout the rest of the episode or episode chapter. I'm sorry. I keep on doing I'm, I'm in. It's almost as if it's almost as if we do a podcast in which we talk about episodes back to back. I don't know. (laughs) This is definitely one that I wanted to pick your brain on because, um, you had a background in somewhat of faith. Uh, and I, this is not one that I really could translate well because i I'm not a religious person, uh, but you have been in the past, and I just wanted to pick your brain about it. All right. Um, so I would almost view this as like the Father Karras conundrum of I've seen so much shit and I don't believe anymore that when you're staring at absolute evil, it has to reaffirm your faith because then you're seeing, you're literally seeing the other side of your faith in your face. So I don't mind, I don't mind that as a storytelling aspect. Um, in terms of like, having faith and and chucking what you said was tap water, but was actually holy water. Like, I don't know. Like, I think, um, I think had the, the story been tweaked a little bit, a little bit more where maybe, um, instead of like a random, like bank robbery or whatever, what if the kid that he went to go like try to save was just like hit and a random hit and run and they never caught the truck. And so it starts being implied that this, this is the truck or the semblance of the truck. And, you know, like I, I just want a little bit more tying back to his, his crisis, but there, there's a, there's a character bit 
um, when we had the family freaking out because their, their child's dying in front of them. And, uh, he says to his friend, the other, the other, you know, um, uh, father call nine one one, get an ambulance. And he's like, he's dying. He's like, call an ambulance, basically being like, yes, this is happening, but we're going to do everything in our power to save this kid. We're going to, you know, God helps those that help themselves call a goddamn ambulance, you know? And like, as opposed to just giving last rights, don't give up on this kid until he is actually passed. So I think there was a small character beat there with his character of like, this is terrible. We're going to do our best. And he starts doing CPR to the kid to try to get him, you know, back. So as much, I don't know, this whole thing of like, I think he was more frustrated where if people just give things up to faith, that means they're not going to try. And that means that lets evil prevail in a lot of ways until evil was directly in his face. So I think this is a little bit more complicated. I just think that, man, you could have had something amazing here. This was still great. Um, but it kind of drops the ball. And I almost wish that the, that this story you could do as a feature length and do dual and make it a, um, make that name mean two different things of like weird trucker stalking you. And then also the duel of yourself between, um, you know, your own lack of faith and being faced with like this ridiculous thing. If that makes sense. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Uh, there are, there are some, failed opportunities here um i think that what holds this together uh for me at least is uh lance uh lance is such a a captivating actor he can take a shit role and he can make it work i mean he is a he, he he's a miracle worker when it comes to scripts um and like there there are some really cool shots in this but I wouldn't say overall that this is the best shot chapter of the four either. So, well, I mean, like, I think it also, some, like sorry. I said, failed opportunities. I think it betrays the, um, I think it betrays the, the viewer whenever you, the one single shot you get inside the cab of the truck has an upside down crucifix. It's like, yeah, can you, can you just like, what, what else would you need? Could you just stop the film like for a second and do like the, like the Looney Tunes, like, devil like with an arrow on top of the truck like you don't need that additional bit the windows are smoked out this thing is stalking him it's not good you know we don't need to know that this is the devil truck i think you could pick that up already i feel like that was bringing a sledgehammer in that aspect um i think maybe even if he did a thing of like i don't know like it, it the passenger window rolls down and you see the dead kid in the passenger seat like there would be enough there to be like, um, to show you, you can't run away from this. Like this, this is the, the, this is the thing you've chosen. This is the responsibility. This is your burden. You can't run away from it. And I think that's the big thing about faith that it's, it's, it is, it has gotten to in the segment. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I hate that like faith is used as justification for lack of action because people will believe it will all come together because just have faith. And then it's also used as in like, do something, have faith. And if something happens or not, then 
you have to accept that, well, that was the way it was meant to be. And I think at least his character was trying to actively battle it. So I'll give him that, that credit that it didn't just, um, like do the, like, you know, shrug and be like, well, you just got to believe. I think this, the, the whole segment of this was, um, we're going to give you evidence. Even the Bishop later, when we get back to it said, there's only a handful of times where like absolute evils manifests itself in front of somebody. This was one of those times. Um, I don't know what that prophet's evil. If you've reaffirmed somebody's faith, but you know, I'm, I, I'm not working for that company. I don't know. Yeah. I think that Comcast this is, the, <laughs> Sorry. This, this is the lesser of the two killer car movies that came out in 83 Christine being the more superior. Oh, Damn. I love Christine. Um, yeah. I know. Right. And what you were saying about the, the, the possible dead child being in the cab that brings to mind the, 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 the novel of Christine um, and, you know, having the owner, the original owner of the vehicle being the, the passenger to Arnie uh, through a lot of the sequences and that, that, that could have been cool. That could have been like an opportunity that would have presented more um, questions and faith and where uh, Lance I'm sorry, Lance Frank. His actual first name is Frank. So Frank's character would Bishop. have been in more peril. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I just I just uh, think, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe it's just one, maybe I'm I'm always a sucker for like shortcutting a storytelling where it's like, just get it in your face so people can see it. But I also but then that also belies the last statement I made of like the upside down cross. I we know the truck's evil, but if it's there because it's presenting that he's running away from his problems, I don't know if that was stressed well enough. I just think it was just showing that he's a man of no faith. Now the devil's going to pick on him. So I don't think that the line was drawn as well as it could have been between this truck showing up and him abandoning his faith because of the the senseless death of this child and he's trying to wash his hands of that burden and got out of there that's that's the way i read that i think that i think the two are connected i don't think the story does a good job of connecting the two though yeah it, I, it, I think that the the one part of this which you already said that is completely ridiculous and kind of fun at the same time the car coming out of the ground we could have lost that scene completely because there are sequences here that probably upon first viewing people wouldn't notice it each time that this this truck uh collides with him it's taking damage as well but you notice that when the car keeps on or the truck keeps on coming back there's no damage mm -hmm. to this vehicle so that already implies that there is something more sinister going on there's some it's happening with this vehicle that is not just well, he's going to a body shop that's close by and getting it repaired. Yeah, I mean, not to not to belabor the point, but hey, that's what we do here. Um, you could tell, you could take this long form and still have the same struggle and still show all of that and still have it come out the other end where everyone's like, I don't know, there's no other tire tracks. There never was a truck, and it's like then that is when the viewer and the character have to take it on faith that something happened, which is what he does, but. Um, it just I'm not against I'm not against belief and faith driving a story. I'm not against it. I just think that it's an easy crutch sometimes that's a default where it's like, oh, they didn't believe enough or they believed they believed just enough. And I um and, and the good news is with this, 
that Lance Henderson's character, I think that his, his, um, his lack of faith was certainly justifiable for the shit he has seen. So I'm, I'm, I'm about that. And I also am okay that he has believed that he now has work to do. I'm okay with that too. I just think that, and again, this is a short form anthology film, 83, you know, we just literally just talked about a segment in which a video game came to life and Emilio Estevez. I mean, you know, take that for what it's worth. Um, we didn't get all allegorical there. Uh, <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, what was it? Isaac sacrificing his son or whatever. I it's just, I'm getting all that wrong, but anyway, um, with this though, I think one or two more strings attached to it. And this could have been just like a banging segment to this, this film. Um, it's still my second favorite because of the dual nature of it and Lance Hendrickson. Uh, I just think that the ending's a little weak, but I really enjoyed this and it was a delight coming back to it with, with forgetting everything about it. Uh, you know, this episode wasn't as, God, I did it again, a chapter. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny enough, these were supposed to be four ep- uh, episodes of that show. So yeah. hey, not too far off, but anyways, um, this wasn't a, a very strong chapter for me, but I really looked forward to having this conversation about this episode, considering the, the knowledge you have of faith and that. Uh, so, um, in talking to you, I actually enjoy it more because of that conversation. So my, my counterpoint to all this, and not that you're disagreeing with me. Um, I recently watched, I'm talking like the last year I watched the changeling for the first time and George C. Scott's character in that. And I know I've talked about this previously, doesn't believe in shit, but then like this house keeps talking to him and showing him things and he just kind of opens his ears to it. And it's like one of those things where it's like, uh, you know, I think ghost stories, and this is, it's not the same thing, but follow with me for a second. I think they can be very hand wavy of like, well, this is ghosts. And this one could have been like, it's just the devil or it's just Jesus. You know, um, you got to give me some rules a little bit, but I think like something like the changeling where it's him seeing evidence of shit going on and listening and trying to resolve something that made that feel much stronger than for me than just being like, I don't know. Ghosts be ghosting. And I feel like a lot of times with this type of subject where it's easy just to hand wave and be like, I don't know, Jesus magic. This segment doesn't do that. Um, and I wish more if, if people want to get into the battle of good versus evil, if people want to get into like matter of faith and not, um, I think, I think that's worthy of discussion. I think there's some cool ideas there. Um, I want to see a remake of this. Uh, This is me making a joke. I want to see a remake of this with Kirk Cameron as the character, uh, because I think it'd just be really funny to try to see him act through a lack of faith. Um, I really don't want to see that movie, but I kind of want to, but I want to see a remake of this, um, and make it 90 minutes to an hour, like two hours and really drag it in the dirt about what it means to believe and what, it is important to some and how they come out the other end. I think there is gold in these Hills and um, it's a bummer. This film right now is not available other than you buy it from shop factory. And I also think that uh, it's not seen by this could be a cool indie film. This could be a cool a 24 low budget Blumhouse production or whatever you want to call it 
that could actually speak volumes and get into the dirt and get into some really good discussions and some interesting, thoughtful ideas. Um, and bring, you know, bring Lance Anderson back as the Bishop talking to whoever the lead is now. I would love that. Yeah, that would, that would be cool. Bishop as Bishop. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just not Kirk Cameron, even though I think it'd be hilarious. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Anyway. Um, yeah, let's get onto the story about a large rat. How about, how will we talk about that one? How about we, like, uh, this will also one deals with faith. That's not true whatsoever. Um, I'm, I, I'm sorry. I front sold the large rat. Terry set up night of the rat for us, please. Okay. So we, uh, go to, uh, a house, a uh, couple, couple people are sleeping in bed. So that's, uh, our, you know, Oh, who is it? Oh, my actors. They're, they're listening my to actors. the band fear is what <laughs> like, no Veronica. So we see St- uh, yeah. Steve, the Houston's, the yeah. Houston's are sleeping in bed. Um, uh, they start uh, Claire. She, she hears something moving around in the house, whatever we find out there. There's a rat problem. Steven, he wants to take care of himself. Um, his wife wants to hire an exterminator. He seems like a penny pincher at this point. And he also seems a very like uh, non-emotional about how his, his approach is with his wife and that. So we already have uh, you know trouble in paradise there. Um, and through in further investigation that there are more things that are happening around the house. Um, the, the, the cat is definitely seeing this too. So we see the cat eventually um, you know checking out uh, under the house, the cat gets killed by something. We are not sure what it is yet. So, um, the little girl, Brooke, um, she keeps on asking about the cat, keeps on asking about the cat. And finally, uh, Claire, she goes searching around the house, um, doesn't find it in the garage and all that stuff, finds that there is a crawl space that exists under the house that isn't a finished area. Uh, and it has been broken into by something. So when she goes into this crawl space, she hears something which she thinks is the cat, but she sees all she sees are eyes. And then in that moment, she also reaches down to brace herself and finds the dead cat. Yeah, I just, yeah, it's, that's also messed up. I just got to point out like, so Mr. Houston, like you're right, he's a bit of a pity pitcher, but I don't, I don't know if it's a pity pitcher. I think he just believes he's a man of action and he also believes his wife is like hysterical. And I just, I, the segment as it goes along, there's these, these really, really, really tiny flashes that you want to, you want to realize that maybe he's not a jerk, but I'm talking like 95, five, like 95% of the time he's an asshole, 5% he's Okay. But he's just like, okay, fine. It's just a rat. You know, we'll take care of it. And then there's the bit where he puts the traps up in the attic and he's like, took three seconds. It's fine. Basically being like, woman, do your job. I'm a, I'm at work doing business, business, business. What are you doing all day long? Um, yeah. So Veronica Cartwright's character is aware that something's wrong in this house the entire time. And there's some pretty big warning signs like, Glasses falling randomly after like a cabinet shake, um, enough hair that's being pulled out of a sink that you probably have a Japanese ghost girl in your pipe somewhere. 
Um, <laughs> like it is disgusting, right? Um, yeah, and the cat dying. Which oh, I want to ask you a question. It's an orange cat. That's Veronica Cartwright. Was that Jonesy? Was that Jonesy the cat that got killed? I would be upset if that was Jonesy. Right. Yeah, I, I made that connection too. I was like. <laughs> Um, We've obviously seen Alien way too many times. Uh, not it, enough she, times. It, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> true. It, no. and, you know, and you know this is the, you know that she was an alien too because let me just point out the fact her eyes are so like distinctive. You knew who this chick was, and then you saw the orange cat. I was like, wait, what's going on? Is it an alien that's under? Is it a xenomorph that's under the house? <laughs> yeah, and and so um, the, 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 so. If, <laughs> if the first segment was an urban legend and the second one was like this, I don't know, um, morality tale, like be careful for what you want. And if the third one was a test of faith, this, this is just a straight up monster story, right? That's what it is. Uh, we get, she keeps wanting to bring exterminator in her husband's like, no silly woman, you stay in the kitchen and, and clean up all this hair. And, um, yeah, um, there, there, the only thing so there was a brief bit when she's like trying to like unclog the sink where, uh, the cat, and I forget the name of the cat. Um, I will say Jonesy and the, the daughter was like, where'd Jonesy go? And, um, and, and the Rosie. mother, R- Rosie was, the, it was Rosie, right? It was Rosie. Rosie. So Jonesy was like, no, I'm joking. So Rosie is gone because Rosie <laughs> investigated everything going on and Rosie got clipped. Uh, but She's like, why, why would Rosie get out? And, 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 um, the mother's like, well, maybe, you know, it wanted to go see other cats or whatever. And it's like, but like, basically it was implied, like, why would they want to go see other cats? And there was this small moment between the mother and father where it's kind of like, you know, I know the cat's fixed, but it doesn't mean it's not going to try. Like there was a small smile between both of them where it's like, you get this brief bit that they are sharing like a genuine moment of warmth of like our daughters being ridiculous, which by the way, for child actors, she's actually pretty good. Um, like I thought, which I looked up her, I don't know if you looked up her history. Don't, um, spoiler. She died at 21 drug overdose, which is terrible. Uh, cause I thought that she actually kind of had a good, like a good child actor charisma. Cause she, I felt bad because this little girl was delightful. You know, and they gave her some dialogue to work through that not every kid actor could have done. Um, so, uh, yeah, but she's asking, why would the cat want to go out and deal with other cats? I thought that was kind of funny where it's like, well, that cat wants to get it on, even though it doesn't have bits and pieces. Um, so uh, we got that. And then there's later on when this assault starts happening on the house where like the husband as much he doesn't believe the wife, he's seeing these huge gaping holes in the house and everything. So he finally starts to believe, but he doesn't even believe when they bring in the exterminator and they see this big gooey hole behind the one cabinet that fell down. He's like, Oh, well, it's just, thank you. Exterminator. Did you actually do anything? He's like, no, he's like, well, thank you. I'm not paying you. (laughs) Like, I don't know, Terry, I don't know about you, but if I had a big gaping hole in my kitchen and my significant other's like, I think we have an animal problem, I think I'd believe them. At that point, yeah. <laughs> Especially when you're seeing like the goo running down the wall and everything, too. Like, that's just not coincidence. It's no. not it's not a plumbing issue. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, so it it 
ends up that, you know, um, the guy that was the exterminator, he ends up, uh, like reading this, this, this book. And he ends up calling her in the middle of the night saying, Hey, I think you guys got a devil rat. And she's like, what's that? And he's like, it's a devil rat. You can't kill it. Good luck. <laughs> it's like, well, I've heard about these old, these old tales of these rats that show up for like terrible people. Basically, I think it's implied that it showed up for the husband. I think that's implied like him being an asshole now that this thing's kind of set up, like set up shop and there's no way to kill it. And he's like, screw that. I'm, I'm going to kill it because I'm a stubborn red blooded American male, you know? And so then the film becomes a big siege of this rat, which we find out is quite a, just a giant rat, which I don't know about you, but I was actually hoping for a physical effect, like a physical, like, like prop, not what we got. Yeah, like uh, like the movie Graveyard Shift, um, which was adapted oh God, from uh, yeah. Stephen King's yeah, I, story. I need I need some weird rat monsters. Yes. Yeah, like if we would have seen a giant tail that was being draped across the ground, and then that you know, but then finally the final reveal is this shitty effect that we got, which I I, I can't give it any justice, man. It is terrible. It like is. the the size, the size of the rat change in almost every shot too. <laughs> I don't like the credit I will give is that there's a handful of times where they got the rat to actually move the right way through the scene. So I don't know how they did that. And I know it's not physically in the room. Like it's, it's like this weird rotoscoped green screen thing. It just, it is it. The effect looks like 30 years older. Like it would not have stuck out had it been in Jezebel. I'll just say that. Right. Like we, <laughs> it's funny enough that like the, the cast that we do, we've seen better effects in a show that is uh, 20 years older than this. And, it, you know, it's like, it's just a testament to if you put in the time and you know what you're working with, you can achieve better than what, it, you know, somebody might rush. And I think this was a rush scene. I think that they were just like, just dial it in, I, especially since it was the fourth story of this uh, this this movie. Because of the lost budget that they got uh, from the Bishop of Battle, maybe they just had to like force this one in and just deal with whatever they had. Mm-hmm. And that sucks because I think this could even if they just retitled it, I think this could have been a really cool scene. You're right, and I think that I think that the fact that it's running out of money, I think that's a big deal. I think. Uh, Man, you know, like you probably could have gotten like any like effects house like nearby for like be like listen, we need we need a scary rat that we could shoot in perspective. You probably could have gotten it, you know. Even use Rizzo from freaking Muppets or whatever. It's fine. Like I just it just it's it's a bad effect. I, I don't mind the notion that the devil rat is just an oversized rat that um we didn't even get into like whenever the trap went off in the attic, um, the father went and found it was a dead rat, but it turns out it's one of the devil rats kids. And, you know, it just wants his babies back because it somehow possesses the little girl and can speak to her mind because, you know, devil rats can, you know, they have mind powers. All bets are off, whatever. Um, <laughs> we just dealt with the devil truck last, last segment. So devil rat can do whatever. Um, yeah, and the, but the only thing I think is funny this entire time is that every time the father's running around with a shotgun, um, the mother's like, no, 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 you can shoot our daughter. It's like, yes, that's a very real fear. Please stop aiming the shotgun at your daughter. Like the entire time. 
Um, yeah, it's just I me. Mean, I know this is like a, um, it's just basically a, like a monster story. Uh, and Veronica Cartwright in the first half of the story is very compelling and interesting. In the second half, she becomes like catatonic crying woman. And I hate that because I feel like she actually had control of like, no one's believing me this is going on. And then she suddenly, aside from the fact that like she's trying to keep her daughter calm, I respect that. I wish they would have given her more agency to be the resolution for the story because the husband, the husband should have died. He should have been killed by the devil rat and it should have went on its way because then she'd be in a better spot because her husband who doesn't necessarily care about her is dead and then chewed up and killed because of the, the rat. And then they can move on and move to a different house and never speak of this again. Yeah. There should have been something that happened to the, to Steven. Like we should have had like some kind of mauling at least just so it could get to their child. Like almost like payback. Hey, you took mine. Now I'm taking yours. But you yeah. like, you like the payoff wasn't as big because no one got hurt. Yeah. It's just or, now their insurance is going to suck because <laughs> or, or <laughs> their, how, whole house, how, their whole house is thrashed. Yeah. How much worse would it have been though? If it would have had the rat in the windowsill grabbing the daughter and running off into the night. And that's the end of your story. Like that would have been amazingly dark. And I would have, like, yeah. I would have I, stood up and cheered. Like, not for the fact that a young lady would have been squirreled away by a devil rat. That, you know, like, you know, however you cut that, that's bad. But that would have been, you didn't listen to your wife. You didn't take proper precautions. Um, you took one of theirs. She's taking one of yours. And now you both have to deal with this for the rest of your life. That would have been so much better. If we just, even if we had not even seen the rat, um, if we would have, like, again, you know, just small effects, claw marks. Those were fun leading up to this point. But uh, then you show this. I, I I felt like it was a terrible effect. It was terrible. Yeah. It would, But like the story, the name of the story, man, like if you yeah. would have named it something else, you could have it could have been fun to just name it something else. And then you have no idea what the hell the animal is. By the time that you find out from the exterminator what it is, you're like, well, duh, you know, like it's a rat because we know it's a rat. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. So it, I think it was the weakest of the segments, uh, unfortunately, which is a bummer because it's like, I, I mean, I, I guess, I guess as an anthology film, you, it's not fair to judge the previous segment. Like you shouldn't judge the current segment based upon the previous one. However, um, if you're a person putting this together and you're looking at everything, there has to be someone that's going to tap you on the shoulder and be like, you know, do, do the rat one first and then get the shit out of the way. And then maybe save, maybe save the Bishop of battle for third. I don't know. Like I, if, if I, if I was to order this and like, if it was me shaking everything up because there's no frame story, I think maybe I would do, um, I would do the, the night of the rat first, uh, Terra Topanga second, uh, Bishop of Battle third, and then the Benediction fourth, because then at least it ends like a little bit more of a kind of positive note. But then you get like some heavy hitters in the second half. Um, but that's just me. No, I get, I get it, and it, 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 you know, just upon like second and third viewing, this was one that it just felt 
well, damn, I could just walk away and not enjoy the rest of this film, quote unquote, because it's not enjoyable. Like, it's, yeah, I can, like even the, our third story, it's it's still there's some there's something there that's obviously uh, conversation inducing. We have that when we get to the fourth story, it's like, OK, I, I'm, I'm ready to head out. Uh, you too. <laughs> like, and, <laughs> Yeah, if this is a drive and it's like, let's just beat the crowd, let's get out of here, the goddamn ramp, gotta get out of here. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Um, all right, uh, I, I, I think that we've, I mean, I don't know, I got nothing else for that last segment. So to kind of to kind of where it falls down to, which I know you and I are a little divided on the segments, and I think, that, I think that's great. I think that's great for discussion. Um, Bishop of Battle is still number one for me. The Benediction is number two. Topanga's number three and then the rats number four. I don't know where, like, I think, I just think you're one and two are switched. Yeah. For me, the, the number one segment out of this is the terror and Topanga. And then the Bishop of battle. It, it's, it's actually in the order that it is because, um, hmm. I saw, I found a lot of interest in the Terra and Topanga, uh, chapter because of the, the stuff that I really normally would gravitate towards the, the Bishop of battle, I think I'm a little jaded here. Uh, it felt like a Goosebumps episode or a Are uh, you afraid of the dark? Are you afraid of- <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, there's even there is an episode where the kid goes into a pinball machine. Yep. So I, I'm sure that was take like that was loosely adapted from this, but you know I I've seen it, but I, it, that that doesn't take away from the way that it was executed in this movie. I love this segment. Um, it's just the other things that I liked about terror just edged it out. Um, but you know, like that's the order I dug it in. Um, the, the night of the rat one, there was just so many flaws in it. So many things I would have loved to have changed that would, would have made that a very strong storyline, but here we are. We got what we got. <laughs> yeah. So I just say, take out night of the rat, watch graveyard shift as Brad Dourif. Like just watch that instead. That's, it's a, oh, it's a yeah. more of a fun film. And, um, uh, Burt Ward, not Burt Ward, Fred, Fred Ward, uh, the guy from uh, Tremors, the other guy. What's it? Um, he's the one. I that, think it's Burt Ward. Yeah. Burt Ward. I, I just, I, I always want to, like, I always get him confused with Robin from the Batman series. Uh, um, one shit a second, because he's like he's the, the 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 boss, right? Like, uh, he's an asshole in that. And it's it's a it's a fun film, which you know, if at one point we wanted to cover that down the line, I think I'd be okay with that. Uh, let's see here. Um, where we got here? I, 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 I've lost it there. It's right here in front of me and I don't really see them. So I thought that was Ward. That was the boss in that, right? No, I don't think so. Actually, oh, right. but, uh, David Andrews is, uh, is John Kelly, Kelly Wolf, uh, Stephen Matchiff. Is that, no, that must be uh, him. That do. must be Stephen Mock. That must be him. Uh, that because he looks a lot like him, so I, I I must have gotten that screwed up in my head. So I apologize for that. Um, I thought that was, but I was wrong. Anyway, watch uh, watch Graveyard Shift because Brad Dourif plays a character named Tucker Cleveland. Hell yeah, and he's a weirdo. He's a weirdo in that film. It's great. Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, nightmares. I am super 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 happy that we got around to this because we had been talking about it for I don't know a season of the Twilight Zone. And that you went through your efforts to, to, to secure this film and we got to watch it and talk about it. I enjoyed, I enjoyed watching this. Um, I might end eventually owning this myself because I think there's enough here 
to drop the money to get the shot factory release. By the way, they're, I don't know if it's a restoration, but their print is beautiful. The film looks good. Like the green, it's just, it's a clear print. It's, it's just, I don't know. Like we take time and effort. Like it's, it's a good, it, like it, the print is good looking. I'm not saying all the shots are great. Cinematography is great, but it's a clean, good looking film. They do a great job. I, I the fact that like I it was a kind of a, a sight unseen from what uh, company had produced this. Uh, as soon as I saw it was Green Factory, I was like, great, I'm I'm happy now. I bought this edition. It was a little bit more expensive than I would normally uh, pay for a movie in that, uh, but the quality of this uh, picture was awesome. Yeah, Screen Factory can't speak highly enough about them. I'm glad that there's companies like that that are uh, trying to find a lot of these like hidden gems and restore them and give them to the people that have been yearning for them for years. I mean, like we need more companies to have this kind of like ambition to find movies and get them out to the, 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 the hungry public that has been craving them for so long. Yeah. And you know, like I, I, at the beginning when I played the segment from Bishop of battle and then it was like, some films are released each year that you're not aware of. And it's like, and this one might be a sleeper. It's like, I don't know if that's the right ad campaign, but it was, it was appropriate. Uh, a lot of people fell asleep on this. It's a fun movie. Um, does it have a flaws? Yes. Is it worthy of revisiting? Absolutely. The cast is too good to not want to watch this. So yeah, I'm glad we covered nightmares. This was, this was a really, really fun, um, you know, detour. So I think that's going to do it for our discussion about, uh, about nightmares, unless you have anything else you want to talk about. No, the, uh, it's just a side note. Uh, this is the, Second of two great anthologies that came out that year as far as film. Uh, don't forget, Twilight Zone, the movie, came out in 1983 as well. And I promise so, everybody, once we get through season five of the original series, which is going to be sometime next year, um, we will cover Twilight Zone, the movie. I've, I've been chomping at the bit to do that for quite a while. Um, yeah, so uh, we will cover more anthology films in the future. Maybe you want us to watch Cat's Eye. We'll do that. I think it'll be fun. Uh, we'll see James Wood try and try not to smoke, you know, and a, uh, and a weird, uh, little goblin person that fights a cat. If I remember right. And Drew Barrymore, um, we could cover cats. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Um, or whatever. So, uh, in the meantime, I hope you guys uh, can find us on Facebook. It's a strange highways. Um, you know, tell us, uh, again, we just wrapped up season four. Tell us your favorite episodes of that season. Uh, give us some feedback. That'd be great. Tell us if you had the chance to watch nightmares and if so, how, because other than Terry buying it and dragging it to me, I have no idea how to watch this movie. So uh, if there's a secret, super secret, uh, like way to, to watch it, let everybody know, because I think this film is definitely worth it, worthy of the watch. Um, and we had a lot of fun with it. Uh, you guys can email us at strange highways, podcast at gmail.com. Uh, give us feedback. Tell us other anthology things to cover. Um, if there's other shows that you want us to dive into, I have no problem with that. I know Terry just mentioned, are you afraid of the dark? I have a love and by love, I mean, lowercase L really, really tiny love hate relationship with, are you afraid of the dark? We'll cover more of that. People tend to respond to that. And my wife forced us to buy the entire series. So we're working our way through it. I think that would be fun to talk to Terry about. Not fun watching. I said it. Fight me. Um, yeah. So uh, you guys can find us wherever you get your podcast. Uh, you know, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Music, Stitcher, Podbean, Podcatcher. Um, I, I don't know. Denny's. I don't know. Wherever, wherever you get your podcast. Just find us rate and review us it'd be greatly appreciated and if you like our conversation you like what we talk about 
tell other people. We have plenty of things we've covered, and we're about to get into some stuff that's really current. Uh, so if people like podcasts, they like genre stuff, why not? Recommend it. It'd be greatly appreciated. Yeah, I'm super excited about the the next uh, episodes that we're going to be giving to you guys. Uh, it's something that I'm going to be uh, going to be viewing blindly. I have well, all both of us, of us are be. viewing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be fun. I I can't wait to see what Jordan Peele is going to bring to uh, our our universe of uh, you know anthology and that. It's it's going to be a real fun trip. Yeah, so as of this week, season two of the Jordan Peele produced Twilight Zone is now available on CBS All Access. The reason we didn't jump into that this week is because it just came out, and I don't know, we might need a minute to watch it and process it and make notes, so hope you guys can bear with us. All 10 episodes of season two are now available, at least as of today. I'm looking at them right now. Um, we are not going to binge it. We're going to cover like the next 10 weeks. We're going to watch these in order. So if you guys want to binge all of them, that's great. Do that. You know, good on you. I, I, you know, more power to you. If you'd like to like take your time and slowly digest them and then come back for our conversation, that'd be wonderful. You know, that'd be great. So the next episode that we're covering is actually going to be season two, episode one of the Jordan Peele Twilight Zone. Uh, it's called Meet in the Middle. Uh, here's a little, little descriptor of it. So I'll read that. Lonely Bachelor Phil, played by Jimmy Simpson, if you guys know him from Westworld and um, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, uh, finds meaningful, meaningful human connection when he discovers a telepathic link to a stranger named Annie, uh, Jillian Jacobs, which I think she's from Community. Um, I should know that off the top of my head. Their connection quickly sparks a romance, but not everything is as it seems in the seeming idyllic, 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 Ideal fantasy. Words fail me. Meet in the middles of that next episode. I don't know anything about it. Uh, so, Terry, I'm going to tell you this much. It's 43 minutes long. Is that not exciting to you, considering what we just went through for season four of the original series? Oh, my God. I'm saving, <laughs> what, eight minutes? That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. More than that, it feels like. I feel like the season four episodes were like six hours long. So, this is 43 minutes. And we have a... Uh, it's in color and, um, you know, it's new. So I, I don't know anything about it. Can't wait to talk about it next week. And this is going to be a lot of fun. So I hope you guys join us on the journey for season two of the new Twilight Zone because nobody knows what to expect. This is going to be awesome. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm totally stoked about this. I'm glad that we're doing it uh, completely blind and our audience is going to be blind and they're going to be following us along with the journey. Hopefully episode per episode and we're going to give this the credit it is due because we are we are fans of the genre uh let's subgenre rather of uh anthology and i think that you really need to give it time give it thought and give it the effort of actually like investing emotion so i'm excited absolutely so let's go do it for us this week hope you guys enjoy our talk about uh nightmares um so yeah have a safe week watch twilight zone we're coming back to more Twilight Zone. And in the meantime, um, I don't know. Uh, okay, well, if, you, if you have a large rat in the house, get the hell out of there. I think that's, I think that's appropriate. Uh, make sure you can beat the bishop. Mm -hmm.